listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. Entrepreneurs are problem solvers by nature, but when you're solving complex business issues, the last thing you and your team need are technology hassles. That's why with the Galaxy Book lineup, Samsung set out to make a PC that helps you reclaim the workday, eliminating distractions and empowering you and your team to focus on the big picture. Invest in your workplace. Invest in your future. Upgrade to Galaxy Book, the PC that helps modern businesses go further. Explore the whole range at samsung.com slash galaxy book for work. And now on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. You want to hear what it's like to get a sales pitch from a titan of industry, and also they're completely correct because I have a technological failure that they are witnessing in real time? Oh, yes. That <laughs> is when I connected by video recently with Michael Dell of Dell, Dell Computers, and we were going to have an interview, but I could not begin it because I had all these notes that I wanted to refer to. And they were somewhere on my desktop, but I couldn't find them because it's too messy. So let me close a bunch of things. And uh, there we are. You need a bigger monitor. I <laughs> do need a bigger monitor. That is very true. I've been. We, we, have, a, we have a new a new 40-inch screen with 11 million pixels. That sounds amazing. I'm looking at one of those right now. Okay. You, you definitely need one of those. And really, was I in a position to disagree with this? I was not. I really do need a bigger monitor. Michael Dell is correct. Let me tell you a little bit about Michael Dell in case you don't know, though I'm sure you at least know the name. In 1984, Michael Dell told his parents that he was going to drop out of college to sell computers. And they were concerned, to say the least, but the gamble worked. His namesake company became one of the largest players in the computing space and then went public and made him a billionaire. But when in 2013, Dell announced that he was going to take his company private, Industry insiders and the press were even more skeptical than his parents back in the 1980s. But that didn't bother him, he says. I think most people are pretty careful and pretty risk averse, and they don't achieve their full potential because they don't want to fail. And I think a big part of my success is not that I was 50% smarter than everybody else or something. <laughs> I was just willing to take more risk. This is the subject I really wanted to dig in with him because he has a new book that is called Play Nice But Win, in which he details his career origins and the long saga of taking his company private. And he's really open and very, very instructive about the hard lessons that he learned along the way and why he still appreciates risk taking and failures. So in this episode of Problem Solvers, that is what we are going to be talking about. And you can take it from a man who has built one of the world's most recognizable brands. Take those risks. We'll be back in a minute with Michael Dell. Startups can outgrow their cloud computing power in pretty much the same way that a person outgrows their cell phone. 
you know, you invest in something that seems great at first, but then time passes and it starts to get clunky, but you don't upgrade for a while because it's too expensive and complicated. And so you end up sticking with this thing that just doesn't work. And in the case of a startup and cloud computing, that means that their tech is struggling and it's difficult handling the company's bigger needs. And they are not even confident that they can take on enterprise size clients. But Oracle has a solution for this, and it is called Oracle for Startups. The idea is that startups can gain access to the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-ins, a startup can build whatever it needs. Now, a startup has the power to scale. So don't stay stuck. To get free cloud credits and 70% off Oracle's cloud services, go to oracle.com slash go to slash problem solvers. Again, that is oracle.com slash go to slash problem solvers. All right, we're back. So here's what happened when I actually found my notes and then we began the interview. I told Michael that I really enjoyed his book, but the thing that I enjoyed the most about it wasn't actually all the details about his career and about the sale of the company, but rather that sprinkled throughout the book were these interesting insights about his philosophy on business and how he approached business. And he wrote, for example, early on in the book, he wrote, the whole reason I thought about going private back in 2010 and the reason I was all in on it now was that where the world and the stock markets saw vulnerability, I saw opportunity. Where the experts saw doom and gloom, I saw thrilling possibilities. I knew that opportunities come from looking at things differently from having a contrarian perspective. So I read that little bit that Michael wrote back to Michael. And then I said, now you're writing that about going private, but I imagine that that is a philosophy that you hold pretty much throughout business is probably a larger way of thinking here, which is that where people see walls, you see windows. And I'm curious where that came from for you and if you felt like that was something that you had to refine throughout your career because it is a key to success in entrepreneurship, but it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Well, I'll have to say, you know, I, I've been blessed to maybe always kind of think that way. And if I was going to give credit, I would give credit to my parents who didn't kind of quash my curiosity. And so, you know, I was a pretty precocious child and and was always experimenting and taking apart things and you know, they could have easily said, oh, don't do that. But they just kind of let me explore things and learn about things. And so, yeah, I've always wanted to understand things. And I've also figured out that the consensus is often wrong. And I've learned to take a different perspective on, on things. That doesn't always lead to the right answer, but the crowd can be wrong. Do you think that that is something people can learn? I mean, you know, you're your answer is, I think, one that a lot of entrepreneurs give in that it's hard to know where something as fundamental as your worldview comes from, right? Unless somebody had a very specific moment. But I would imagine, I'm going to hypothesize, and you can respond whether I'm correct or not, that over the course of your career, maybe you took a small stab at saying, you know, I think maybe the crowd is wrong and I'm going to try something. And it worked out. And that emboldened you to try a little larger the next time. And then that emboldened you to try a little larger the next time. And eventually you get to this point where you're like, you don't exactly know where on earth this started, but you now have this ability to see beyond clouds. Do you agree with that? Is that is, is it something that you think can be built into the process of entrepreneurship? A related point here is I think most people are 
pretty careful and pretty risk averse, and they don't achieve their full potential because they don't want to fail. And I think a you know big part of my success is 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 not that I was fifty percent smarter than everybody else or something. You know, I was just willing to take more risk. Yeah. And experiment and learn and ask questions. And is it a learnable trait? It can probably be improved on and and honed. And certainly, yeah, I was lucky to grow up in an, in an environment where I was able to kind of cultivate that and, and experiment and try things. And my parents and, and the environment I was in didn't shut me down. You are probably in some sort of rare company. I wonder if anyone's ever done like a tally, right? Of people who have built an internationally recognizable brand that also shares their name. And this is interesting to me because I think entrepreneurs struggle quite a lot with how to separate themselves from their company. They feel very personally attached to it. And that can lead to bad decision-making. I was just recently talking with Danny Garcia. I don't know if you know who she is. She's the Rock's business partner and and has helped him build all of his businesses. And she has built quite a number of her own. And anyway, she just started this business, clothing business that was inspired by some of her own kind of needs. And I asked her what it was like building a business that was more personal in nature. And she said she had learned from all the previous brands that she had built that weren't personal, that you can't ever drink the Kool-Aid. You can never associate yourself too closely with the with the brand just because it's personal or in your case, shares its name. And so I'm, I, there were a number of times where you, you sort of acknowledged that or acknowledged maybe a, a challenge with that, right? There was one time where you wrote in putting the company up for sale, it wasn't outside the realm of possibility that someone might try to grab my company away. My company, it was a paradox. I couldn't really say Dell was mine because it's a public company, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something that must be on your mind. I'm curious how you have over the years figured out how to separate yourself from your company. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, you know, it's my life's work, right? Yeah. 37 years of blood, sweat, and tears. And and so I, I do have a certain affinity for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I think I'll care about this company after I'm dead. So there is that. I mean, as you also read in the book, I actually didn't name the company after myself. A lawyer did. Right, right. And, and it ended up being ended up being the name of the company a bit later on. Sure. Or at least the trading name of the company. But yeah, I, I think another aspect of that is that I learned kind of early on not to take things too personally. And I would say developed a little bit of a Teflon skin because, you know, people are always criticizing you and, oh, this, hey, it may look like everything went great, but you know, if you read through the book, you'll see there were lots of challenges along the way. And so you just learn to really not take things personally and, and stay focused on the, the long-term plot. I noticed throughout the book, you quote the press a lot in the in the book. Headlines, commentary from the Times and the Journal and so on. So while you had developed this this Teflon, you were also aware of it, right? You were you didn't seem to be shutting out what people were saying about you. Were you actually able to and are you actually able to consume what people say, good and bad, and also have most of it not stick to you? Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. I certainly hope so. I mean, in the go private, it was sort of an epic media extravaganza, if you will, <laughs> right? I mean, it was like every day there were there were 50 stories and and it was it was kind of bananas. And that was fascinating and interesting. And even like the pictures they chose was kind of funny how they would portray the whole thing. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of people say things about you. And the other thing is, you know, when you're leading a company, if things are going really well, greatness is ascribed to you way beyond what you deserve, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the reverse is also true. It's just, it's just you're the front person for the company. So that's the way do, it goes. Do you have advice for people who struggle with that? And look, not everybody, of course, is going to have the media extravaganza that you will on anything that they do. But... Everybody can go to social media and see what people are saying about them. And I think a lot of people get really lost in that. I will give you, even me, I, and, and on the smallest of things, I was just doing a, I'll give you like the ground floor version of this, right? Which is, I had done a little survey. I run a little survey of people who like listen to my podcast and stuff about what they think and who they are. And one person, one person in this survey said something sort of not very nice. And my heart instantly started beating in a different way, you know, and I, and I thought about it for the next 15 minutes. It's really hard to shake this stuff off. So do you have advice for people on how to get better at it? I think the first question, you know, to ask is, is there anything that can be learned constructively from this? Or is it just people spewing off nonsense? You know, in those parks in London where they have little boxes and the crazy people would stand up and say all this nonsense, sure. right? Well, before the digital world, you know, you'd sort of walk by and you'd sort of say, this guy's bananas. I'm not going to listen to him. So why would you listen to somebody online who's banana? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so don't waste your time on that. Yeah, maybe the, there are things to learn from feedback and, and that sort of thing, but most of it doesn't really matter. And I think there are a lot of dangers of people being too obsessed with how they're viewed in the you know social media world. And, and certainly I think for, for teenagers, especially, I think there's some real dangers there. It's sort of related to not taking things too personally and finding that balance. You wrote that I always told the board they could and could and should talk to anybody at the company that they wanted to talk to anytime about me or anybody else or about anything at all. You stress that you wanted to be open and transparent. And that, of course, means people talking about you <laughs> uh, to others. That also, I think, is something that is very challenging. People, that's, that's something that everyone would say they want to do. But then to truly be able to remove themselves from other people's consideration, to understand your role in a company and that, you, you know, even if you founded it, even if it shares your name, you are not the end-all be-all of this. That's a really hard thing to do. Can you, can you take me into that that process and how you manage that? Well, the essence for me is, is that you know, I've got nothing to hide. And by the way, trying to hide things, I suspect is really hard, right? <laughs> so, uh, and creates all kinds of internal conflicts as well. And so my point with the board was, hey, you know, talk to anybody you want to talk to is totally fine. I'm, I'm not going to try to be the, the go-between or to try to insulate the board from real information. And I'll explain my point of view, but they can they can talk to anybody they want to talk to. And, and it, it's just easier that way. Do you find amongst your peers or amongst entrepreneurs that you meet that that, that is a that is a challenging thing. Again, who doesn't want to say, I am transparent, I have nothing to hide. But to actually manage your relationships like that and to not feel like you have to be a part of things and hold on to information, is it's quite another thing, right? Once people are actually in it, it, it must be quite another thing. 
Sure. I mean, I've known people and worked with people and certainly know, know people that I work with, you know, in other companies that are kind of super control freaks, right? And they want to control every communication and every interaction and, and that sort of thing. It's just not how I do it. And, and yeah, I mean, you've interviewed lots of, lots of people. You, you've probably seen as many different styles and approaches to how people succeed or fail. Yeah, I certainly have. And I've seen people grapple with their own style or evolve to the point where they realize that the style that they're most comfortable with is no longer the style that works for their company. And that is, that's a fascinating thing to hear from people that they discover that at, as they grow, and I imagine you had to do quite a lot of this and you detail a lot of it, is you have to realize that you have to be a different leader for a different company. Same company, same person, but not really anymore. Oh, no question. And as a business goes from a million dollars to 10 million to 100 million to a billion, 100 billion, as we've been fortunate to be able to do, everything has to change, right? And everything has to evolve, including how you lead. And if you're not able to do that, you're going to have challenges. Now, I think there are principles and values and beliefs that should be consistent, but the role of the leader is to understand and comprehend all that and figure out what is needed then to be successful, to inspire and motivate and drive the business forward. This reminds me of something that a friend of mine who's a business consultant once told me, which was that he often asks people at the very beginning of their journey to seriously pose the question to themselves, what if this goes right? You know, what, what, what if this works and this grows? Have I set myself up for success? We, we always focus on failure and learning from failure, but you have to prepare yourself for success too. I, I wonder as you look back, if there are things you might, you might wish that you knew earlier about how to manage growth, how to manage success. So much, Jason. You know, I mean, they didn't teach any of this in, in my high school. And I only went to college for a couple of semesters. I took macroeconomics, which didn't really prepare me very well for running a business. So I just made a lot of mistakes and hopefully didn't didn't make them over and over again. And yeah, learned learned along the way by tripping up and falling and experimenting and figuring it out. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, more on that on that, on failing and what exactly Michael Dell personally has learned from it after the break. This is a message for lawyers, consultants, accountants, photographers, designers, and other professionals who sell their time, which I know is a lot of you. Square is here to make your work-life balance better. How are they going to do that? Because their suite of tools works together to easily keep you organized. You can send out custom estimates to bring in more clients, accept any type of payment that your customer wants to use wherever they want to pay. Take payments in person, over the phone, through your computer, through email or text, via invoices or on your website. Get real-time reports that show you what's working best. And their built-in client management software even lets you have all your notes and client details in one place, including a card on file for repeat customers. Square's tools are built to work together so that you can spend less time on paperwork and more time on actual work. Learn more at square.com. All right, we're back. Just before the break, Michael Dell had said, learn along the way by tripping up and failing and experimenting and figuring it out. And here's my follow-up question to that. 
you have a million specifics uh, and they're all in the book, but I'm curious if there's something that you might pull out as maybe the hardest learned lesson or something that something that it took you maybe longer than others to digest? Well, I would sort of go right to people, right? And and the importance of who you surround yourself with and how you develop talent in the organization. Now, at the same time, when you're growing like a total maniac kind of rocket ship company from zero to hundreds of millions and, and billions, it's super hard to find people that can grow as fast as the company is growing and are willing to be crazy enough to join you. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when, when I started, it wasn't exactly like, it wasn't super obvious that this was going to be as successful as it turned out to be. And so risk was super high. We attracted kind of mercenaries and the best people we could. As we became more successful, we could attract more talent. But boy, I mean, the focus on developing talent and really time nurturing and ensuring that, that we have the right talent. Yeah, I wish I wish we had done more of that, certainly in the first decade of the company. This is not something that I wrote down, so I can't quote it exactly to you, but I remember that you wrote something like that you had eventually come to a realization that the people who got you from A to B may not be the people to get you from B to C. And yeah. And I pretty much went through the whole alphabet with that because <laughs> the business just kept evolving and changing. And the way to think about this is not, you know, what have you done and what do you, you know, all the things, you know, it, it's like, okay, we're going to walk out of the building and walk in like we're the new leaders of the company. And what needs to be done right now? We don't care about anything we did in the past, right? <laughs> and, and we're willing to question anything. Nothing is sacred. What does the company need right now? And if you're not willing to do that, you're going to have problems in, in a business that's changing rapidly. Do you feel like I, I, that's a really wonderful kind of visual metaphor of walking out of the building, walking right back in? Do you feel like along the way, and I ask this for entrepreneurs who are at any stage of a journey and have felt the company maybe grow out of grow out of the plan, right, that they had and grow out of the systems. When you experience a moment like that, I got to walk out of the building, walk back in like the new leader of this company, and I don't care what came before. Is that something you do every day or is that a singular moment? Do you try to do that once a year? Are there milestones where you step back and say, OK, let me take a look at what we've got and what we need? How do you how do you actually assess that? Hopefully you're not doing it every day because, <laughs> you know, you, you're talking about some pretty monumental decisions. But if you're growing rapidly, the business is changing, or even if it's struggling, yeah, I think you're going to be doing that relatively frequently. Today, you call it a pivot, right? Yeah. <laughs> but they happen all the time in, in business. And yeah, we probably had to do that 10, 15 times over, over 37 years. Mm, wow. Does it get easier? I think it does get a little easier, actually, <laughs> after you've done it a few times. You also wrote about, and this is this is not, you wrote about this with sort of grappling with the stress of the going private, but I feel like it maybe even applies here. You had written about how good you would become at compartmentalizing and be interested in hearing you speak more to that and, and if you feel like it's, it's a really important skill for entrepreneurs to develop. I don't know how you could do a job like this without compartmentalization skills. There's just so many things going on. And of course, you've also got the rest of your life, right? You've got like kids and family and friends, and they've got great things going on in their lives and challenges and everything else. And so you want to be a 
a husband, a father, a, a brother, a friend, etc. And you need to be able to compartmentalize it. And of course, when you're doing big, interesting things, often you have to work in secret. So you have to be able to task sw- switch from one thing to another. And, and uh, compartmentalization is, is super important. The reason I had seized upon that is because I have talked to so many entrepreneurs who weren't able to hold that line, at least at first, and it ended up harming their relationship with their families or they lost touch with friends. It can be a very all-consuming thing. And I imagine once you get to your stage, right? Like, look, you don't become, you don't sit in the chair that you're sitting without having become really, really good at it. But when you look back on it, I wonder if there are realizations or lessons that you can pull out for entrepreneurs who might be listening, who are saying, how am I supposed to be a functional entrepreneur and a functional person at home and have those things live at least partially separately? Well, the first thing I think is time, right? You have to recognize that there's a diminishing return to the number of hours against really any task, right? (laughs) So trying to work 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, forget about it. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to be physically well off. Your family, it's going to be a wreck. Just I could do it. I slept at the office, right? (laughs) When When I started, but I was... 19 years old. Nobody cares, right? Sure. You can work 18 or 20 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're physically able to do it. But after a while, you figure out, well, that doesn't make you happy, right? <laughs> you're not happy unless you have balance with your family and you know you want to be outside, you know, you want to go for a walk, you want to, you know, go for a run, ride your bike, you know, physical, be with friends, etc. And so managing time, sleep, man, I'm a big fan of sleep, right? (laughs) (laughs) And getting rest. And then it's, you know, kind of energy, do what gives you energy. And you're not going to be better at your job if you do it for 18 hours a day, right? (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. So you've got to figure out how you manage your time, your energy balance, and your sort of resources so that you're happy and and you can sustain it over a long period of time. Anybody can sprint. And I've been in situations where you just have to go all out for a short period of time. Sure, I get it. But you can't do that forever. And if you want to keep running marathons, you better have a sustainable pace. I, As I told you, I've been in Colorado for the last year and a half. And I started to do a thing that I had never done before. And that was to take an hour or sometimes more out of the workday and go bike riding. Never, never, ever, Michael Dell, have I done that before. And the reason is because I thought I had to be anchored to the desk because there's so much, there's always things coming in. There are always things that need my attention. If I walk away for an hour, what is going to happen? And then I started walking away for an hour and the shocking realization was that I came back and like nothing broke. And in fact, I still was able to get everything done. It was, it seems like the stupidest thing in the world, but it was a revelation. Yeah, awesome. And and it gives you energy. It doesn't take away energy, right? <laughs> and, and when you're out there on the bike, you're processing and you're thinking and all the different things you're dealing with come together. And that's some of the best thinking time that you can have. And so I think all that's that's super important. What's your, do you have a routine? Do you have a routine where you step away for a walk or for something? How, how do you manage your, your time? Well, I try not to make it totally routine, but you know, I love, I love, you know, here in in Central Texas, we have uh, fantastic outdoor spaces. I love to walk, hike, 
you know, sometimes riding my bike, although I've gotten afraid of cars, so I, mm. I'm, I'm pretty pretty careful. You know, lift weights, just stay active and stay moving. Yeah. We're coming up on our time here. I want to just ask you about one more thing, which is you write that you've always kept mementos in your office, some of them personal and some about the high and low points of the company. And uh, you write that the low points matter a lot. And I I think that's a really powerful thing that I would just love to hear you speak a little bit more about is, is keeping a memento, something that maybe you glance at every so often that reminds you not of a great time, but of a bad time. But I imagine because you're still you're still sitting there at the desk. It was not an end time. And therefore, I suppose it wasn't as bad as maybe it felt at the time. Can you, can you speak more to the importance of keeping those kinds of things around? Yeah, well, th- there's, there's always valuable lessons learned. I mean, we had a time back in the late 80s where we took on a massive engineering project. It turned out to be too ambitious and it failed, but we learned a lot and we had a lot of great capabilities that we built as a result of that. And the lessons that we learned in terms of how far to push the envelope and what the right levers to push and pull were, those were tremendous learnings for us. And I try to share those lessons throughout the company so we don't have to relearn them over and over again. (laughs) And it's important to learn from what's happened in the past. Although, again, you have to say in a business like ours, so many things are changing. You're almost always dealing with circumstances that have never occurred before. So you really have to have an open mind. So does that mean, if I hear you right, you keep this a low point, you are reframing in your mind, not as a low point, but as a lesson. Because if you got through it, then you took something away from it. And that's a valuable thing. Absolutely. I mean, some of what people would characterize as, oh, my God, this was a disaster, actually turned out to be the best learning we ever had and led to like a thousand times more success. And if you looked at that low point and said, oh, my God, woe is you. You got this big problem. You made this mistake. What are you going to do now? Well, we're going to go fix it, right? But we that was such a painful lesson that we ended up developing a tremendous capability that propelled us way further than you know we'd, we'd ever imagined. Yeah. Michael, this is really fantastic. Thanks so much for, for sharing all this with me. Sure thing. Happy to do it. That was fun. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.